Appamata and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. Thank you. Thank you, Kim and Laurie and Maria and Anne for taking on the roles uh, that make it possible for us to come together today. Uh, so, so wonderful to see the folks uh, in the observatory, Susan, I'm sorry, observatory. <laughs> that is uh, a word that just came up out of the mists, I'll tell you. No, in the Zendo, pardon me. Uh, Susan and, and Brian, so great to see you there as well. And, and thanks to all who are joining online this morning. I won't, I can't see everybody's window here, so I won't attempt to say all their names, but I wanna say, I'm very grateful to be able to connect with you online and to have the opportunity to give this talk. Um, I'm going to talk about a frustrating search that I am involved in. And then I'm going to talk about boredom as a kind of frustration. And, and believe it or not, my goal is to say something about compassion, awakening and practice. And I, I'm just I'm trying to do it using what for me amounts to everyday language. Uh, let me start with a story that I hope will do something with some brain chemicals in your brain. Uh, one year, I think it was 2007 or 2008, a microburst storm, clearly a small tornado, rather short-lived, sped east from Lamar Boulevard through the neighborhood um, right around Appamata uh, after midnight, one night late in the spring. Picture this. It's a storm. It's dark. The electricity goes out. A storm comes along. It's throwing huge bursts of hail. And the winds are strong enough so that trees that align that line 38th Street in Austin, uh, twist so that they snap off at about waist high. Big trees, at least this big around. Um, <clears throat> I'll say this, that storm was significant for me or, or, because I knew about it, only because I had started attending Appamata regularly and, and I saw the effects of it right the morning afterwards as I was driving to Appamata from my home. Um, when the storm center reached uh, what is now the Appamata Zendo, Peg was there. She, this was her home, and she was asleep. And she says she, uh, she, she later described waking up to find her face wet with rain and, and then stumbling into the hall in the dark. The electricity was off, of course and feeling crunchy things under her foot, which turned out to be pieces of hail and leaves and, and pieces of glass. Uh, luckily, she was not injured and her house was repaired fairly quickly afterwards. So again, there's a, just think about what's going on in your mind when you hear uh, an interesting story like that, that, that involves something scary and, a, and an okay resolution. 
Now I want to tell a different kind of a story, uh, focused on me, a lot less dramatic, but um, germane, I think, to this. So sometime after these events, uh, I was in awe. I had, as I say, I just started sitting in at Appomattox, and um, I'd had some meetings with Peg before, but this was a particularly um, fraught day for me, and I was in awe of this generous, energetic woman who had turned her home over to others, to, to strangers, really, to others, day after day, and who had such wise things to say. Um, uh, and uh, so I, I showed, up, showed up at Appomattox with enough courage to meet her for practice discussion and to really open up in practice discussion. Uh, I remember describing with some shame the struggles I was having in my life, uh, the conviction that I was simply a bad person, uh, and backing up that assertion with lots of shameful examples of cowardice, dishonesty, anger, mental dullness, laziness, lots of laziness, and an inability to do anything on the meditation cushion other than to watch those examples cascade through my mind one after another. Um, and how grateful I was every time the bell rang and I could run off someplace else and distract myself. So I told, I told this to Peg and um, she didn't argue with me and she didn't seem to be judging me. Uh, she looked at me with a kindly kind of interest and I don't remember everything she said but I do remember that what she said had the quality of care and respect in it. Um, maybe she said something like, oh, you have a lot of thoughts swirling around. And maybe she mentioned that microburst storm. I, in my mind, there's an association there. But I do remember what she said next because I truly think that it changed my life. She said, you do not have to believe those thoughts. They are a story you're telling yourself. They're just thoughts. That story is not you. And she shared a parallel encounter with Joko Beck in which Joko told her uh, that Peg's story of being a bad mother, of being overwhelmed as a graduate student and so on, was just that, a story that she could see through, not be trapped in. What I experienced in the moment that Peg was talking to me is best described that I, by a, a word that I think, uh, by a word I, I learned this week, apperception, um, which is defined as the process by which newly observed qualities are related to past experience, or defined as the process by which a perception or idea attains clearness and consciousness, or finally, conscious perception with full awareness. I think that that the, the, in Appomattox, uh, well, I, I would have said, up, up to this week, I would have said this was an aha moment. But apperception has a better, a better explanatory quality to me than that. And, and I think at Appomattox, we would describe this as, as realization. It's like, uh, not, not just where things are no longer just mental ideas, but become part of our being. Uh, in apperception, then, I was slotting what Peg had said to me in with some things I'd heard from Peg and Flint 
uh, about Big Mind, for example, and also with some reading that I've been doing, including the book Being Zen by Ezra Beda, who was also a student of Joko Beck's. Uh, Ezra Beda described how Joko had helped him see that emotion thoughts that were plaguing him were composites. Uh, there was a bodily feeling and a thought almost always coming a little bit after the bodily feeling that, that seemed identical to the feeling, that seemed to be one thing, but that, in fact, the, the bodily feeling and the, and the thought were separate, and that that could give him the freedom to examine them with more equanimity, without, being so, without it being so painful for him. Um, and in this moment of apt perception, I was also able to draw on a little sliver of light that I had perceived in my own meditative experience, in which I had left out of all the shameful stuff before, uh, a sliver of light that allowed me to realize, again, physically as well as mentally, that what Peg told me and what Joko had told Ezra Beda, those things were correct. And more than that, that this kind of sliver of light experience could be useful to me in accessing some of the freedom that I perceived up to that point as being just invisible to me, hidden from me. Um, uh, anybody who's heard me talk before is, knows that I'm going to talk about the book Buddha's Brain by Rick Hansen and Richard Mendius, uh, which I've talked about many times. Um, and uh, so I, I started reading that book, uh, Peg's recommendation, and I got fascinated by the neuroscience underlying our default mode of approaching life, which with its dukkha, that is the construction of suffering out of uh, inevitable pain by grasping or aversion. And also the possibilities uh, of being awake and living in loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. Hansen um, spent some time describing what the Buddha in his teachings called second darts, the, which is something like the blame we throw on ourselves when faced with setbacks. Uh, and his description was rich in details about neurochemicals and interactions among parts of the brain. This is really, and this remains fascinating to me. Um, at the time, it helped me in the process of integrating that apperception, that aha moment of pay. <clears throat> and it made a big impression on me to realize that a lot of what was going on was, in a sense, purely physical and that the physical aspects of it were really mysterious. That there was a signaling going on in my body, among my organs, my brain, my heart, my lungs, my, the dilation, the, the muscles that dilate my eyes and, the, and, the, and those things affecting my salivary glands and everything else, and blood pressure. Um, these were all communications that were going on that were below the level of my awareness and were communicated, communicating through hormones and all things. I mention this just because it gave me a measure of self-compassion, just to know um, that these things were going to happen. And it wasn't, it wasn't exactly me doing it. 
And that helped me in a way also to have compassion for others, even people I was in conflict with, to know they are living in the same kind of bodies. They are having the same kind of stresses. We are, we are one in that way. Hansen writes about this. Our experience of these physiological processes is very intimate. When I am upset, I sure don't think about all those biochemical details. But having a general idea of them in the back of my mind helps me appreciate the sheer physicality of a second dark cascade. Its impersonal nature and dependence on preceding causes and its impermanence. And again, the, the compassion that can arise for yourself is a gateway to compassion for others. Uh, since then, I have gone off in a slightly different direction. And I, I've been fascinated by the way that the literally cosmic richness of the world comes to us mediated through our severely limited sensory, mental, and cultural channels. How our eyes hide at least as much light information as they reveal to us. Similarly, how little we can hear of all the sound frequencies in the world. <clears throat> how it is that language, which makes our social lives possible and our mental lives communicable in ways that help us construct our, our feeling of self. How that language is also a straitjacket, imposing limits that it takes determined study to even begin to notice. The Buddha's original insight was that everyone and everything is composite and temporary, inextricably connected with everything else in the universe across time and space and in constant flux. That means that the separate solid self that we feel ourselves to be is an illusion that helps in some ways, but that leads through a chain of causality to suffering. We and all the universe are in fact non-self or empty of self, not things, but processes. If we wake up to the connectedness of life and the reality of each moment, we can let go of trying to maintain our separate eternally, eternal self and that can free us, it can awaken us. And I, I, that was the key awakening that the Buddha had as the morning star arose on the day of his enlightenment. That's the best summary I can come up with right now. And of course, there are literally thousands of books and millions of words that do more justice to this uh, world-changing insight that the Buddha had. Branching off again, what has stayed with me for the past uh, dozen or so years is a secondary thought. The non-self, empty quality of life extends below culture and thought and psychology into the physical organs and the molecules and biochemical interactions that are actually life. My, short, my shorthand version for this is, I don't breathe. In, instead, the capacity for breath that the universe put into this body from its original genetic expression, <clears throat> along with everything else in this skin bag here, is creating me moment by moment. And yet this confluence of 
physical, mental, and social constructs that creates me also masks itself, sweeping me back into the illusion of self over and over. Um, I, I, I've, let's see, a couple weeks ago, Christoph Piekowski gave a talk uh, in which he described a book by the Buddhist philosopher uh, Jay Garfield uh, called Losing Ourselves. And uh, he, he gave, uh, Christoph presented Garfield's alternative version to how we can conceptualize ourselves and how, how it's more uh, ethical and, and morally um, productive to think of ourselves not as individual selves who are cut off from the world, but as persons, that is, derived from the same word as personae, of actors, uh, people who play roles, that we all play roles with each other that begin when we are infants, it begins with our interaction with our caregivers, and we learn who we are and that we exist and by reflection in the eyes of others and, the, and in the words of others and so on. And that um, we continue, and I'm continuing right now, presenting myself to you as, as a role and that this is, Again, that not thinking of myself as a separate person who has needs and has and, and is, is kind of given the the uh, permission of the universe to do anything I want to get those needs filled. That uh, instead, we are intimately connected, and I have a responsibility to know that connection and to act out of that connection, and to. Uh, bring the, uh, the Brahma Viharas into my life in my relationship with you. Um, and finally, one more point. These interlocking realms of co-creation, of psychology and uh, biology and uh, social structure, uh, they provide what I think is the best and most confounding example of non-self, empty existence. Look for life and all you find is, elect is electrochemistry. It's mystery all the way down. There's nobody home. As George Orwell said, to see what is under one's nose takes a constant struggle. So much more so, I think, when the emptiness is not under one's nose, but is one's nose, is one's whole body and mind. Strangely, though, and mysteriously, again, this emptiness creates the capacity to see itself, to look inward and outward, and to live in wonder, gratitude, morality, and compassion. In Dogen's uh, immortal words, to study the Buddha way is to study the self, to study the self is to forget the self, to forget the self is to be actualized by myriad things. At the beginning of this talk, I mentioned a frustrating search. Uh, I have been thinking about the moment when I understood what Peg meant about not being my thoughts and about Joko Beck saying that emotion thought is not a unitary truth, 
but a process that can be analyzed with compassion and equanimity. And I have shared such moments with many others. And I am curious if it is possible to find a description in physical terms, in biological, biophysical terms, that, that uh, a description of what could have been happening in my brain at that moment. A moment when I went from bondage to a flicker of freedom. A moment, I must add, that hasn't lasted, but that does get renewed over and over again. Um, my goal is not, at least so far as I can tell, my goal is not to try and explain away the Buddhist teachings into uh, modern scientific jargon. But again, simply to let my see, myself see into this layer of mystery. The frustrating thing for me is that there's only so much that a person who topped out with a BA in liberal arts from a small Catholic university in the 70s, uh, there's only so much that I can take in and there's only so much that is available to a non-specialist readership. I know there are journals out there of neuropsychology that have to do with emotion regulation and things that happen in the brain, but I have trouble finding them and understanding their significance relative to what I'm looking for here. Here's one example of something that I have found, which seems to point in the direction I'd like to learn more about. A paper in Neuroscience News says, studying the brains of rhesus monkeys, researchers at the Garvin Institute of Medical Research in Sydney, Australia, in 2015, documented the way that three regions of the brain interact to maintain emotional equilibrium. There's a part called region 25 in the brain, known as also, also known as the subgenal subgenual cortex. Uh, region 25 is very active when strong negative emotions are felt. There's a separate region, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And this region communicates with region 25 to help regulate negative emotions, but it doesn't do so directly. It does so by using connections to another region, region 32 in the anterior cingulate cortex, which is rich in inhibitory neurons. And these neurons send signals to region 25, helping to modulate the excitation emanating from there that is felt as emotion. So again, go back to imagining if you would, I'm telling Peg how I have trouble uh, with parts of myself, and she helps me see that I don't have to believe those thoughts. In that moment, I imagine that something like the interactions um, among these three or some other analogous brain regions might be happening. I would just love to know more about that. But where is the I in that? Uh, those brain regions are not using words. They're not using anything that I can perceive as activities connected with me. They're more like toddlers with little squirt guns that have dopamine and serotonin and epinephrine and stuff in them that get to squirting each other, you know? 
It's very strange. Um, so how do these activities that seem so mysterious end up with me showing up, telling the truth, paying attention, and not focusing on the outcome? The, the, the modes of activity that, that Flint has recently suggested can help us organize our practice. Like I said, it's mystery all the way down. Uh, I have asked a couple of neuroscientists I know for help, and I'm waiting for their feedback. So I hope to have more to be able to say about this someday, not too, not too long from now. So exciting for me, maybe very boring for you to hear about. I don't know. Uh, so let me talk about boredom and why a, a wandering mind particularly a wandering mind in meditation, can be a gateway to compassion for self and others. This has to do with some other reading I've been doing. And at least to me, it seems connected with what I was just describing. In 2014, there was a famous experiment. Researchers at the University of Virginia, Charlottesville enlisted 42 college student volunteers in a study in which these volunteers could sit alone or would sit alone in a quiet, featureless room for 15 minutes with nothing but their own thoughts. Kind of like what we do, what we've been doing this morning, right? Or they offered the students an opportunity, the, the volunteers, an, a, an opportunity to do something else, which was to administer to themselves an unpleasant electric shock which they had tried before the session and, and knew that would, it would be very unpleasant. Nearly half of the participants in the study chose to shock themselves before 15 minutes was up. And the majority of that group that chose the shock was male, by the way. One man shocked himself 190 times in 15 minutes rather than have to sit there with his own thoughts. <laughs> Um, this explains something of the appeal of, uh, to me, of playing word games on my cell phone. <laughs> uh, sitting quietly is an activity that parts of our brains, which are primed to look for stimulation and significance from the outside, experience as starvation. They want those brain chemicals, the serotonin and dopamine and other chemicals, that they are used to getting, uh, but those channels uh, have been cut off. Boredom uh, is frustration. It feels like a thwarted desire for purpose and meaning, and it has a unique kind of pain. Here we are, we're sitting still, and that takes a kind of mental effort, uh, but we're getting much less than the expected reward. Uh, one of those affected brain regions in the anterior cingulate cortex shuts down in a state of boredom. And that shutting down itself cloaks the rest of our experience in a kind of unpleasant haze, like a low-level pain. At the same time, the default mode network of brain regions gets activated. Everybody who's, who knows about psychology is like, come on, Joel, we all know this, right? Uh, but it gets activated. The network 
inactivation makes our mind wander and ruminate about the past and future, about how others see us, and, and things like that. But again, it's all colored by the unpleasantness that originates from the starved anterior cingulate cortex. If you have ever hit yourself with a second arrow because your mind drifts to self-centered thoughts while you're meditating, and you feel kind of bad while you're sitting in the ceremony of Zazen, even though you've heard that, the, that Zazen is the gateway of ease and bliss, the Dharma gateway of ease and bliss, and yet these things are happening to you. You might consider some compassion for yourself in the knowledge that it's simply a predictable process for primate brains. Studies show that in a state of induced boredom, if people have only the option to, uh, as an escape mechanism to harm others, they are more likely to harm others than to stay in a bored state. Bored people, it has been found, are more likely to bully other people if that's their only outlet. If, however, they have more than one option, uh, including one to do good for others, they will tend to choose that option over the harmful one. So boredom makes people want to escape from an unpleasant feeling, but it doesn't itself lead to evil choices. I think that's important. In fact, of course, Philosophers and writers and, and poets have said through the ages that boredom is a powerful spur to creativity and that the best ideas can come out of a spell of boredom. The researcher, uh, James Dankert, he's the author of a book with a great title. It's called Out of Our Skull, The Psychology of Boredom, says that boredom is just a signal that can trigger either a vicious cycle or a virtuous cycle, an opportunity to reframe priorities. And if we can look past the stories we are telling ourselves to find options for living that are more meaningful and that help us connect more with our fellow beings. Boredom says researcher L.B. Westgate, who set up that experiment with the sitting in the room and the shocking, uh, L.B. Westgate says is linked to a lot of what most of us want out of life, such as living a rich, fulfilling, interesting, meaningful life. Boredom is just one sort of signal, maybe an unwanted signal that helps us to get there. What I try to remember when I have drifted off into self-centered rumination, colored by the ache of boredom, is that it's just how my brain works when I sit still and that I don't have to experience that pain as pain. I don't have to turn it into that word, turn it into that story. And I do not have to give the, those thoughts that are going by, I don't have to give them the status of my identity. The myriad things are all alive in me. And in fact, they are at that moment as they are now and as they are all, as they always have been, living me. So I stop there. Thank you for listening. I welcome any thoughts or questions. I'd just like to say something. Um, thank you for that, Joel. That was uh, that was quite. <clears throat>
people. <laughs> I just remember somebody saying that um, most of the world's problems are caused by a person not being able to sit in a room on their own doing nothing for 15 minutes. And uh, it kind of stayed with me. And uh, everything you were saying, I just kept getting an image of this, uh, you know, a child's ball, roll, the stripy ones that roll down the hill and you can't see, well, I suppose all balls roll down the hill, don't they? But you, you, can't, you can't see the colours because it's rolling that fast. But like if you slow the ball down, you begin to see all the separate colours. And I think as you were talking, it was reminded me of sitting and how it slows us down to, to the point where we can begin to see all the different colours, all the different elements, feel all the different responses and reactions and and why this practice is so important because it gives us that space to begin to open up a space to shift and to begin to see everything well not everything i mean like you said you know we're, so, we're a cascade of so many different things going on so many things uh, beyond our awareness but it begins to to help us to begin to see some of that you know the tip of the iceberg some of the things that we're that we're getting up to that we can begin to see the colours of and and be with. And I think for me, it's awareness that's the key. It's that bringing in the awareness of, of everything that, that kind of begins to slow everything down. And it's the opening. It was when I began to sit and began to, to learn how to be still in a room on my own, you know, and not urge away from it not leave the seat not get up and do something but just stay through all of those impulses and urges and boredom and you know self-centered thoughts and all the things that come in and just learning to stay with then that's when we can begin to kind of unpick and spot all our second arrows and all the things that we're you know waking up to what we do as uh, there's a book isn't the waking up to what we do it's that kind and that that's the key for me it's because we can't change or we're always going to have the chemical reactivity the brain's always going to do what it does you know we're, we're always going to have parts of the brain that inhibit one another that excites something else so just having a space to be with it all and and just just be with rather than acting from all of it just learning to have a space and a gap between ourselves and the world helps us to kind of be in have a completely different relationship with everything and i think that's what your talk was bringing up for me joel so thank you very much well thank you maria that was beautifully said and and I, I want to add one thing to it, which is you're telling me about it and I told you about it and I told Peg about it and she told me about it and we were able to share these things. And that turned it in, that took a painful experience and flipped it into a sharing, a sharing that, that brought us together and that we have, you know, we have this community where we can Talk about these wacky ideas, uh, and 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 be met with kindness and um, generosity, and have, and we and that brings those qualities forward in us. So we have to do the work of sitting, but to be able to do it together in our sangha, and um, 
and then to bring that connectivity into the world is what makes us alive, I think. <clears throat> yeah, and I think for me, what was so vital and what was missing for quite a long time was compassion for myself in all of that. When we're sitting with all this stuff that's coming up, it's that including of compassion. You know, they say compassion is not complete unless it includes the self. And um, and I was kind of missing that for quite a, a long time and kind of oh, look at everything, look at all this that I do, you know, and kind of beating myself up for it. And it was including that compassion for self that kind of had another turning turning point. Mm -hmm. Well, again, for me, an important part of that of that turn toward compassion is is just a contemplation of mis the mysterious level of what's going on below what I'm normally aware of. And um, I just, does that, does that help you the way that it helps me? Mm. You know, to think, oh yeah, my brain, is, you know, parts of my brain are squirting each other like kids with squirt guns. <laughs> it really helps not to believe everything, you know, not to believe every feeling. Yeah. And every thought, because you get all these emotions that come up and it's like, ah, you know, there's another feeling. There's a, you know, and not to add, you get a feeling and then to add, make a meaning of it straight away. Like, you know, the habit is to make a meaning of everything we feel rather than just be with it and let it pass. We attach a thought and then it carries on for longer. You know, mm -hmm. we elongate the suffering <laughs> that doesn't need to, it doesn't need to be added on. It doesn't need to be, um, exaggerated and perpetuated with our thoughts mm -hmm. that resonate mm -hmm. or that resonate with it. Thank you. Yes. So great. That's beautifully said. And Rosemary. Oh, hi. Uh, thank you so much, Joe. Um, uh, so a few things. Um, yeah, so when you think about the brain and how, um, you know, we respond or it's it's responding in certain ways. And um, I think it is really helpful because um, it, it says, well, it embodies how we respond. And um, then we see that we have choices. So I think it's really helpful to know this stuff. What I, um, what I was, to me, the core of a lot of what you're talking about started at the beginning with your conversation with Peg, because that changes the brain too. And when when you're sit when we sit alone, it it is um, difficult. So then, so um, when I first started this practice, and I saw, oh, there's a role, you know, this role of the teacher and the student is so central, and I didn't quite get that but the more I sat I did understand that we need so much encouragement um and this is what Flint was talking about on Tuesday and um that that you know that whatever happened with your brain in your opening up to her her responding to you in the way that she did that can have a a really um uh you know like intense or profound shift in what was going on up there to allow you to have that sliver and, and work with it and come back to her at times and all of that. So, 
yeah, I just wanted to, that's what I was getting, you know, with this whole practice is how those interactions with the teacher just, you know, they have such an impact and how critical they are to help you feel encouraged to continue. So thank you. Thank you, Rosemary. I want to say that I, I think what's happening in me as you speak, as as Maria was speaking before, is apperception. That I'm taking your words, which I, I'm listening to, and I, I'm, I'm slotting them in to my previous experience. Not in the normal way I would do it, which was to you know, reify my experience as, as a self, but just to say, oh yeah, I felt that, it is true. Some, you know, that there's, I can, I can draw an experience to recognize the truth and the generosity behind the words that my friend is speaking here. Uh, and that um, to mean, you know, knowledge of this word apperception just opens another door door for me to be able to think or to to, to appreciate others more. So um, I, thanks for listening to that. <laughs> well, thank you so much, friends. It looks like we have reached uh, the end of comments. So let us go to our Closing, <clears throat> and again, deep, deep thanks from me. <clears throat>